Jack Skellington longs for a life outside of Halloween Town. But a series of shenanigans in Christmas Town doesn't have the intended effect. Coming up next on Out of Touchdown. <laughs> out a shriek with the wave of my hand in a well-placed mold i have swept the very bravest off their feet yet year after year it's the same routine and i grow so weary of the sound of screams and i jack the pumpkin king have grown so tired of the same old man. Well, it's a touchstone musical, so we had plenty of songs to choose from. I actually went with the title of Jack's Lament. That was, of course, Danny Elfin doing the singing. Welcome to Out of Touchstone. My name is Mike DeKalb. On the other end of the Skype line is my co-host, Chad Smart. Chad, it's a new year. We've got a touchstone musical to talk about. How are you doing? I am doing pretty well A-OK. Um, real quick, though, I do want to say, before we get into this, um, I don't know, I, 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 I'm kind of, con- I guess concerned might be the wrong word, but I'm, I'm interested to see how this episode plays out. Because we have a very popular film and a movie that uh, is probably popular for other reasons, and... I think our our discussion about these two films should prove to be quite uh, interesting and enlightening. Eye-opening. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, well, before we get into it, again, I mentioned it's a new year. Um, I apologize. It's 2021. Our episodes were a little bit more spaced out. Chad and I both had a lot of stuff going on in our lives. I think hopefully that's behind us. I did see a really funny tweet the other day that said, May your may the only thing that negative that you have that you have to deal with in 2022 is your COVID tests, and I kind of like I kind of like that mentality. But um, it's it, I feel like sometimes you know we started this show what two years ago, and at the time Chad and I were both working at Disney. I you know we both still do, but it's like this was sort of an idea just to kind of just go back and discover these movies. Um, at one point, I was working at Fox and I was working on Fox's catalog movies. And so when Disney bought us, I thought, oh, that's a good time to start this podcast to look into these movies because it might make my job a little bit easier if I'm going to have to learn the Disney catalog. And so we sort of did this for friends. I, I don't I don't expect it to be great big. And I'm always surprised when I find that people are listening. Right. Like um, my wife is the producer of the show. She keeps track of the downloads. I think she saw that we recently went over like 3000 downloads, which that's that blows my mind. I mean, mm-hmm. we're coming out. This is our 49th episode. Um but I'm always really flattered when I get when I see nice tweets about me. And I just wanted to kind of call out a few people. Um, and that was three people in particular. Uh, one is named Keith Adams, Jr. Uh, the other one is named Jackson Boren. And then the third person just goes by the Twitter handle of Pop Culture 413 
And I just wanted to say thank you for listening. I know that they, they said that they didn't know that there was a Touchstone podcast out there and they really like these movies. And I kind of hope they're in the same boat that we are, right? They're about the same age. They also wonder, like, what happened to Disney movies? Like, what happened to these great Touchstone movies? I was talking to a friend recently. He's been listening to our podcast and he was surprised at how few of them were on Disney Plus. And I was like, oh, that's, you know, that's just what it is. I think there's only about 14 or 15 Touchstone movies on Disney Plus. But it's just, it's so nice to have this community and it's kind of what keeps us going. And it was, it was nice to see that reaction at a time like this because you know, around the holidays, I went on vacation and it was like, we're still doing this show. We've had a long year, but uh, yeah, now it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. Even though 1994 is touched on slate, I got to be honest, it's not the greatest. Uh, and we'll get into that when we get into it, but at least we get to wrap up 1993 with a couple of really good movies. And the first of which is going to begin our discussion today. And it was released on October 13th, 1993, and it's called The Nightmare Before Christmas. From Touchstone Pictures. T'was the night before Christmas, but in the land of Halloween, it was decided that this year something new would be seen. Surprised, aren't you? From Tim Burton, director of Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands, comes a motion picture experience unlike any other. Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. And what did Santa bring you, honey? Rated PG. Coming this month to a theater near you. The film was based on a poem by Tim Burton. Of course, you see Tim Burton's name appear above the title in a lot, even though he didn't direct it, he just produced it. Um, the poem was written while he was still working as an animator at Disney. I read that he was inspired by seeing a department store window changing from Halloween decorations to Christmas decorations. And he was just like, thought that was kind of an interesting juxtaposition. Um, he made a short, few short films back in the day when he, was, when he was working at Disney. And of course, he moved on to huge success directing films like Beetlejuice and Batman and Edward Scissorhands. He was too busy directing Batman Returns to direct this film, but he did serve as producer. The director in the film is Henry Selleck. Uh, like Tim Burton, he was also a Disney animator in the early 1980s, and he was familiar with the poem since he was friends with Tim Burton when he wrote it. Uh, he only had three directing credits before this film, a 1981 short called Seepage. Uh, he did the music video for Party at Ground Zero by Fishbone. <laughs> Did not realize that. And he also did a 1991 TV pilot called Slow Bob in the Lower Dimensions. I wonder, I did not look, Chad. I wonder if that's available on YouTube or one of those things where they show like the best pilots and never got picked up. I don't know. I've never heard of that. I will have to look that up after this show. Yeah. And I heard when he, when he got offered the job of directing The Nightmare Before Christmas, he took it. And so he just dropped the idea of that TV show. And so that pilot never got mm. produced. Uh, I did see that he also did a bunch of stop motion commercials for MTV, like the one where the guy gets the haircut from the little skeleton and his hair looks like an M. I guess that was Henry Selleck. And there's a touchstone connection. He was an in-between artist. Chad, do you know what an in-between artist is? Um, I think that's pretty much any artist, isn't it? They're usually in-between jobs. Uh, that's really true. I had to look it up. That's the people when the first animators draw out some of the sketches, the in-between in artist is the one who fills in the gaps to like make it, to make the motion happen. Mm -hmm. Um, and he was an in-between artist on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Henry Selleck. Um, as far as the screenplay, well, the poem itself was adapted by Michael McDowell. He only had one prior feature credit, and it was Beetlejuice with Tim Burton. He'd written a lot of, for a lot of horror anthology shows, like he did Alfred Hitchcock Presents. It was actually an episode that Tim Burton directed. He'd done Amazing Stories, Tales from the Dark Side. Um, but the screenplay credit went to a woman named Caroline Thompson. 
Caroline Thompson had written Edward Scissorhands with Tim Burton. Uh, she'd also written The Addams Family and two other films that came out in 1993, The Secret Garden and the Disney film Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey. Now, I recently watched the uh, Netflix series, The Movies That Made Us. They did an episode on Nightmare Before Christmas, and they kind of talk about the screenplay credit. It was a little bit odd that Michael McDowell had started it, but then they weren't happy with it. They brought in Caroline Thompson as well. And so it was like, who did what? Who, who wrote what scenes? You know, and then plus Henry Selick was like having to rewrite the screenplay to fit the stop motion animation. So it's it's I, I was my, we were watching this movie. My wife was like, I've never seen a movie where it had an adaptation credit and a, spleen, and a screenplay credit. And that's kind of how it goes. The more interesting part to me is that Caroline Thompson was living with Danny Elfman at the time. And that's how what's one of the reasons that she got the screenwriting job, because Danny Elfman was hired to write the songs and the score for this film. And he wound up performing the singing parts for the character, the main character of Jack Skellington. Of course, his time in the band Oingo Boingo was winding down at that point. They were wrapping up in the early 90s. Um, but he'd become a very popular film composer. And he had scored every Tim Burton film up to that point. I also realized that he was the composer for Dick Tracy for Touchstone. So we have the Touchstone connection. On a personal level, I love Oingo Boingo. So I hope I don't gush too much about Danny Elfman's singing throughout this episode. Uh, the speaking voice of Jack was provided by Chris Sarandon. Now, his career goes back to the early 1970s with films such as Dog Day Afternoon, and then in the 1980s with movies like Fright Night, The Princess Bride, Child's Play, and he was also in one of the greatest movies ever, 1989's Collision Course. I don't know if do you remember watching. You say I watched Collision Course without you, Chad. Is that is that correct, or did you watch it with us? No, I saw it. But when when you said Collision Course, I had to stop and think because to me, my Collision Course is the NBC made-for-TV movie that starred Alyssa Milano, Rob Stone, Jack A, Charles Robinson. Um, not oh, well, huh? not the uh, Jay Leno movie that you are referring to. Yes, Collision Course is the buddy comedy movie with Jay Leno and Pat Morita. As far as I know, it's the only movie Jay Leno was in where he didn't play himself. Mm. Yeah, that movie is just sublime. I love it too much. Uh, the other main character in the film is uh, Sally, and she's voiced by Catherine O'Hara, who, of course, had risen to fame on sketch comedy shows, uh, the sketch comedy called SCTV, and then transitioned to films like After Hours, of course, Beetlejuice with Tim Burton. She was in two Touchstone films, Betsy's Wedding and Dick Tracy. Chat, I did not even realize that Catherine O'Hara was in Dick Tracy. I had to Google image search for it. And I guess she's there's that scene where um, Big Boy is sitting at the table with all the other gangland leaders. And I think James Caan is on the opposite end of the table. And Catherine O'Hara is one of those other gangsters. Hmm. And, and so it was like, I want to say her name was Texie Garcia. And I'm like, okay, I had no idea that she was in yet another touched on movie. And of course she was in the, the two home alone films Her most recent film credit before nightmare for Christmas was home alone too. Uh, and of course, Chad and I, we love our supporting cast. We get William Hickey. You know, usually I always like to drop in a movie credit. I'm like, William Hickey doesn't need to have a movie dropped <laughs> in. We, you know who William Hickey is. It, you know, he's one of the greats. Uh, we get the Tim Burton connection again with Glenn Shaddix, who was in Beetlejuice. Of course, he's also, he played the priest in Heathers. I, mm -hmm. I, I love, I love him. I love that movie way too much. Uh, but do you, do you love your dead gay son? I love my dead gay son. Uh, Paul Rubin is also in the supporting cast for some Kiwi's Big Adventure, directed by Tim Burton. And Greg Proops is one of the voices. Uh, he was doing Whose Line Is It Anyway at that time, or 
at least maybe the UK version of the show at the, at the time. But well, I, I guess we always like to discuss the films by posing questions at each other. We'll look at some of the acting performances. In this case, we got to deal with the voice acting because I correct me if I'm wrong, Chad. This is the first. Not only is this the first Touchstone musical, but this is the first Touchstone animated film, correct? To the best of my knowledge, which goes all the way back to uh, about 11 minutes ago when we started recording, <laughs> uh, yes, it is. Yeah, so I guess we can dissect the uh, the voice acting, and I'll start with you. We have the character of Jack, whose, whose voice is provided by two different people, Danny Elfman, Chris Sarandon. Chad, how do you think the dual performance worked, and what did you think of those two performers? Uh, I thought they were were fine, and, and I was trying to think back as when this movie came out. Obviously, I would have known Chris Sarandon from Fright Night, uh, Danny Elfman. I, I probably I, I would have known you know Weird Science by Oingo Boingo. Um, would not have remembered Dead Man's Party from Back to School. Uh, but I, I was trying to think. You know, did I notice a difference in the voice tones? And and I don't think I did. I think watching the film, you just accept that. You know, the singing voice is the same as the acting voice, or the speaking voice. Mm-hmm. I think they, they mesh pretty well. And, uh, you know, I think when it comes to voice acting, it's not only the the voice, but it's also the character itself. And I think the design of Jack really lends itself to both uh, Chris Randon and Danny Elfman's voices. Yeah, I mean, I, I know, again, I'm, I'm a little biased because I'm a huge Oingo Boingo fan. I, I didn't listen to them in the eighties and nineties, but in like the last 15 years, I've been listening to them nonstop and I love Danny Elvin's voice. And so I, 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 it's great. I, I feel like it's a, it's a very non-traditional voice, but it's very eerie and effective for this part. And to Chris Sarandon's credit, like if you had watched this movie and told me, okay, I recognize Danny Elfman's singing voice, no problem. If you'd told me that Danny Elfman did the speaking parts too, I would have believed it. And I thought I read that Chris Sarandon got the part because he could sound like Danny Elfman, you know, which again, I, I think that's a pretty clever way of doing it. Like I, I, the one thing that did surprise me was just that how few lines of dialogue there are. Like, I mean, I know this is a musical, but there's, this is not like, there's a, there's a term, my wife's a big fan of Broadway musicals and there's a term that they use, which is called sung through. And I guess a mm-hmm. sung through musical is the one where there is no dialogue. Like every, every line is a lyric of a song. Like they don't actually have, they don't have speaking parts in between the songs. And so this one, yeah, there's a, there's only a handful of scenes. If you, I wonder if you count the lines of dialogue that Chris Sarandon has, but I think he does a pretty good job in that little part. Yeah. I agree yeah. with you. But then, okay, so the next question I want to ask is, how did you feel about the character himself? Because I, to me, it just it seemed like it seemed like he was very ambitious, but he also had some qualities of a mad scientist, right? Like I think there's even a scene where he's in the lab and he's trying to get into the 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 the, the, the meaning of Christmas and stuff like that. And then by the end of the movie, like. He, he reminds me a lot of George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life, where he doesn't even realize his own purpose until he's faced with a tragedy. I mean, that's a good comparison. I, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, I think the character itself, to to piggyback off of, you know, the voice, you need the voice, but then you need the character for the voice to match. But in a leading role, you also need a good character. And I think Jack, just his look and the fact that he kind of separates himself from the rest of Halloween town, you know, because I mean, you said he finds his purpose, but when he's trying to find that purpose or I I think he is a perfect example of someone who, you know, you go to work every day and after 20, 30 years, you're like, okay, what am I doing here? 
Why am I still working this job? And, mm-hmm. and yeah, he, he wanted something, but then yes, he finds out that, well, there's a reason he has that job, you know, he's, he's good, but yeah, I thought he, uh, I, I thought the character was well enough, had enough depth to, uh, make you believe in these fictitious hollow, uh, holiday towns and make you believe that, you know, I mean, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I would be curious to see a mashup of, uh, of Sandy Claus and Jack Skellington in the future for a sequel, buddy cop oh. action using yeah. Weird Al's the night Santa went crazy song as a, uh, as a template, but, uh, yeah, yeah. kind of going off there, but yeah, that's, that's what's in my head right now. Oh, I, yeah, I, I wonder, because I like the dynamic where Jack does feel like a hero and a villain at the same time in this in these movies. But yeah, and like you said, it, sometimes you don't realize that the, the best thing you have is what you already have, mm-hmm. right? If you've been doing it too long. I was going to ask, have you ever seen the movie Sullivan's Travels? I have not. Okay, that's the Joel McRae, Veronica Lake from the early 40s. And the whole point of the movie is Joel McRae plays a movie director, and he makes silly comedies. And he says, I want to make something more meaningful. And he says, I want to make a movie called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? That's where that title mm-hmm. comes from. And so he he decides to pretend to be a hobo. And he goes and, and like hitchhikes throughout the country to try to feel what the common man is dealing with so that he can kind of make his serious drama picture. And then, you know, you know spoiler, but what he, ends up decide, what he ends up discovering is that people are really are entertained by those comedies that he makes. And people... Those are really important, and you realize, okay, maybe this is this is what I should be doing, and that's why I do like that moment at the end where Jack is basically like, "Man, I can't wait till next Halloween because I'm gonna it's gonna be the best Halloween ever because he has this new, new sort of renewed sense of importance." But uh, and then the last voice talent voice talent I want to ask you, I was of course Sally Catherine O'Hara. You know, she was almost forty when the film came out, but I thought she did a really good job of kind of capturing the loneliness and despair of this young woman, even though she's, you know, a little bit older as doing the voice talent. Um, I, I thought I was a little surprised by the love story because I thought they just kind of came out of thin air. I didn't mm-hmm. really know if I bought that, but mm-hmm. how do we feel about Catherine O'Hara's performance as Sally? So I don't know if I knew Catherine O'Hara was the voice and, um, wow. and I just forgot. And I'll admit that when I re when I watched this for this, this episode to discuss, I, I kind of zoned out after about 20 minutes, 15 minutes. And that's like kind of when Sally was coming into the picture. And so I, I don't, I, I'm going to have to go back and rewatch because I, I'm sure Catherine O'Hara gives a very good performance because she's a very good actress. Um, you know, Emmy win, winning caliber in sometimes. <laughs> so, but yeah, I, I mean, I think her voice probably even at almost 40 was, you know, because, well, we don't know how old Sally was, you know, she could be, you know, 160 in Halloween town. Who knows? But, um, yeah. Uh, yes, I, I, I think Catherine O'Hare for what I could remember did a very good job. (laughs) Yeah. Softer, angelic kind of quality. You know, there's a great, there's a great scene where Jack is sort of still in that mad scientist mode and he's, he's so driven and he's, he kind of asks her to, to make his Santa Claus outfit, and she's just like, what are you doing? This is not a good idea. Sally, I need your help more than anyone's. You certainly do, Jack. I had the most terrible vision. That's splendid. No, it was about your Christmas. There was smoke and fire. That's not my Christmas. My Christmas is filled with laughter and joy and 
this. My Sandy Claws outfit. I want you to make it. Jack, please listen to me. It's going to be a disaster. How could it be? Just follow the pattern. This part's red. The trim is white. It's a mistake, Jack. Now don't be modest. Who else is clever enough to make my Sandy Claws outfit? I have every confidence in you. But it seems wrong to me. Very wrong. All right, so the next question I got, we'll split up and go into more about the screenplay and the production. This movie, to me, is obviously just very visually stunning. And so, Chad, I would hope that the visuals pull you in like they did me. (laughs) You know, this is one of those things where when you're looking at something today versus when you saw it for the first time, if you saw it 30 years ago, uh, even if I didn't know, if even if his name was not above the title, you could just look at this and say, oh, this is Tim Burton. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very, you know, a few years ago, they didn't exhibit here at the, um, is it uh, LACMA, the LA yeah. County Museum of Art or whatever it is. And, uh, and, and there's a Tim Burton exhibit and you walk through it and you're like, Yep, all of these pieces of art, all these drawings, all these sketches look exactly what you would expect Tim Burton to do. And so, mm-hmm. and, and there's nothing wrong with that because Tim Burton has a very interesting and unique visual style. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of the next evolution of the Adams Family original drawings. And, yeah. and so, yeah, you, I mean, I, that, that style is what makes, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. So, I mean, entertaining and, and good to look at and why I think it's probably stood the test of time is because it is a unique presentation. Yeah. It's funny. Um, my wife and I, we we're big fans of Disneyland and every once in a while we'll, when we go, especially when it's really hot outside in the middle of the afternoon, we'll go over to California adventure and they have the animation Academy. Mm-hmm. Have you ever, you ever done the animation Academy? John? I've walked through there. Yeah. And they have the thing where like every half hour they, they pick a different character and they show you how to draw it. And it's re- like, I have no artistic talent whatsoever, mm-hmm. but my drawings, I'm always happy with how they come mm-hmm. out because they really kind of guide you through it really slowly and surely. And the last time we were there, uh, the character to draw was Jack. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, this is going to be really cool. I got to, I get to draw Jack Skellington. And they always have the animator always has a little headset on and they have a little screen kind of magnified onto a big screen. And they, when, when she is introducing herself to the crowd, you know, she said, do you guys know who directed Nightmare Before Christmas? And of course, everybody in the crowd is like, Tim Burton. And then she goes, no, no, no. And she's getting ready to, to tell you who it was. And then I yelled out, Henry Selleck. <laughs> she was like, well, who said that? Yes, it was Henry Selleck that did it. Just this random thing that I happen to remember. But yeah, like you said, I, this, is, this is his style. It's, it's, it's very reminiscent of Beetlejuice. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of has that, it, I think it was more of a fairy tale than a feature film, but I just, I could not turn away. You know, I, it was great to see stop motion kind of brought back into the greater public consciousness you know it has it has some great elements of like silent films like the scene where sally and jack meet there's not a whole lot of dialogue and stuff it's just it was it's like you said it's a it's a landmark it's 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 very iconic and it has stood the test of time even if it wasn't as memorable when it did come out it seems like slowly but surely you know whether it be the goth kids that really uh, fell in love with it or if it was oingo boingo fans who like the music because I, I still don't know why I never own this soundtrack because it does play like an Oingo Boingo album at times, you know, and also plays like a musical as well. But, mm-hmm. and speaking of the musical, that's the next question that I have for you is, did you like the music? You know, I mean, I'm a little bit, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm biased being an Oingo Boingo fan, but I just felt like the melodies totally get stuck in your head. There's, 
I saw some commercials airing during this holiday season that had the um, what's this mm-hmm. um, instrumental melody playing in it. Like it's still being used. You know, they, they, I, I like the overture that kind of sets up the film, which is basically common in musicals. And so it was like that weird balance of an Oingo Boingo record and a musical. And I, I just, I absolutely, I need to get this soundtrack. Now. Yeah. I, I think I've talked to you about this before that, you know, the, the sign of a good musical is when you walk out of the theater and you're still singing the songs, you know? And for me, when I saw Josie and the Pussycats, when I saw the, <laughs> the movie version of Chicago, having never seen the, the play before, I went out and bought the soundtracks because I'm like, these songs are stuck in my head. Uh, when I went and saw... Du jour means friendship. Du jour means seatbelts too. Um, yeah, uh, you know, when I went and saw Cats, and yes, I did see that in the theater, <laughs> and it was the most magical time in the theater pre-COVID. Um, I I still can't tell you any song <laughs> that is in that movie, but I do own the Blu-ray, and anytime anybody wants to come watch it, all you have to do is ask is... It's, it's life-changing. Anyway, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, yes, especially now watching, you know, you hear these songs and they just stick, get stuck in your head like that, you know, like you said, what's this? What's this? And um, and I think Danny Elfman did a fantastic job of writing these songs and making them fit. Again, you know, you think making a film is, is very easy. And uh, again, mm-hmm. going back to Cats, you could have a, you know, huge studio, huge, a lot of talented people involved, and it just doesn't come together. Nightmare Before Christmas, though, it, it every piece works to perfection with each other. And I think that, uh, mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, that leads, pretty much leads into my last question, which is going to be the one part, the one flaw that I did find in mm. the film. And that was, did you think Oogie Boogie was an effective villain? Because I just, I just really thought it was kind of a hard to get a sense of his character. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 there should have been some more development of him. Like, yeah. I, it's weird to think this movie was only 80, I think it was 81 minutes long. And I just, it, it's weird. Like, I wish the film would have been about 15 to 20 minutes longer. Because I think, especially of all the characters, Oogie Boogie was one that could have benefited from mm-hmm. that longer runtime. Maybe we could have fleshed out that love story a little bit better. Mm-hmm. But I didn't necessarily like him as a villain. And I only know him really, like... We've been to Disneyland in the in the fall when they do the the Nightmare Before Christmas overlay on Haunted Mansion, which of course plays all those melodies mm-hmm. again. And Oogie Boogie's featured in that ride, and so I, I thought, okay, as I watch it again, is it going to be is he going to be a major character? And he really only kind of shows up a little bit later, has like one uh, really heavy one good song, and then a, a scene later at the end, and then that's it. Like mm-hmm. I, I would like to have seen some more of him. I think that's a valid point. Like there is. I, I think Oogie Boogie is kind of thrown in there to be the villain when really you have the uh, mad scientist, the one that created Sally, that is kind mm-hmm. of your villain for the first half of the film. And then Oogie Boogie comes in. So, yeah, maybe, as we always say, you know, good, good screenplay is one re- rewrite away from being a great screenplay. And maybe that was the rewrite that needed to be done is to uh, either flesh out the scientist character to be the true villain or add Oogie Boogie into, um, into more of the, of the film. But then again, if they done, if they had done that, it probably would nightmare before Christmas may have came out like three years ago by the time they finished animating <laughs> Oogie Boogie. Well, and it's funny. That's one of the great trivia footnotes mm-hmm. is that there was one uh, version of the script where the Oogie Boogie was going to be revealed to be that mad scientist. Mm-hmm. And I guess Tim Burton found out about it and, and, 
through a conniption and kicked a hole in the wall. And they said there was a hole in the wall at the, uh, at the yeah. studio where they were filming it. And so you're like, yeah, I could see where that wouldn't work. But uh, yeah, but, uh, but like you said, otherwise, yeah, the rest of it works. And like you said, if you're going to have the, the mad scientist for the first half of the movie, I still think that Jack kind of has some villainous qualities too. Like, like some of the stuff that he's doing is not, you know, it's not noble. And I could see why he, you know, Oogie Boogie, Oogie Boogie would have been a greater villain to where we would have thought that Jack is more heroic, but hmm. because he's not in the movie, I, I found myself thinking that, yeah, Jack did have kind of a darker side to him, but I still love him. I still love the movie. I, 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 I'm very curious to get to, our, to the next section, which is where I'm going to have Chad look at some reviews of the prominent critics of the era, because I'm, I'm a little nervous that some of them might not have liked it at the time, or they would have just praised the animation quality of it, but hmm. I, I'm going to willing to say if they didn't like it, they were wrong. Well, I, it's interesting. And, and again, trying to find like sound bites from reviews was a little challenging until I got to the last one, but uh, you know, I'll get jump right into it with our good friend, Roger Ebert, who <clears throat> was never at a loss for words. So let me take a deep breath to get this all out. Uh, Roger Ebert says working with gifted artists and designers, Selick has made a world here that is as completely new as the worlds we saw for the first time in such films as Metropolis, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, or Star Wars. What all of these films have in common is a visual richness so abundant that they deserve more than one viewing. First, go for the story. Then go back just to look in the corners of the screen and appreciate the little visual surprises and inspirations that are tucked into every nook and cranny. And he gave the film three and a half stars. I feel like I'm going to follow that advice at some point. <laughs> And, and go back and watch it again, especially because yeah. I get to hear the music again. But yeah, I'll look for those little things in the nooks and cranks. Yeah. Uh, then I have two more reviews. Uh, Todd McCarthy, writing for Variety, wrote, If it were a normal holiday animated film, The Nightmare Before Christmas would be an entertaining, amusing, darker-than-usual offering indicating that Disney was willing to deviate slightly from its tried-and-true family fair formula. But the dazzling techniques employed here create a striking look that's never been seen in such sustained form making this a unique curio that will appeal to kids and film enthusiasts alike. So he's kind of with Ebert. Okay, sure. And then we go to Owen Gleiberman, <laughs> who, uh, taking one sentence out of his review, said, I'm not sure I've ever seen a fantasy film that's at once so visually amazing and so emotionally dead. And he gave it a C. Oh, okay. Well, the characters are dead, aren't they? Right? <laughs> yeah, maybe, so. that, maybe that's what he's saying. Maybe that's... Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what they thought. What did you think, Chad? You know, if you'd asked me before I rewatched it, I would have easily given this film a seven because I was a huge fan. I, you know, I, I've bought the Nightmare Before Christmas merchandise. I've got the DVD. Uh, I have not watched this movie in a few years. And I think just in the last couple of weeks when I watched it, it's just been a very uh, stressful time in my life with a lot of stuff going on that even at 80 minutes, I was kind of like, Okay, let me just get through this. And I and I think it's because I've seen the movie so many times. Um, mm. Not that it's bad. So I, I'm going to give it a six just because it is good music. And, you know, I think if I'd watched it on a normal uh, viewing where, where I was more in, in tune to, to sit down and watch it, I think I would enjoy it more than I did. Uh, just with everything going on. So it's, it's one of those films that's hard. I like, I think I need to go back and watch it again and look in the nooks and crannies and, you know, get more joy out of it. But I'm going with the six because I do know how good it is and, and how much I've enjoyed it for 30 years. 
But yeah, that's the thing. I remember when it came out, I, I would have just finished high school, but I never saw this movie until I saw it in the theater when it was re-released in 2006 as a 3D movie. And I saw it at the El Capitan, the theater right there in Hollywood that Disney owns. And they had several of the puppets on display in the basement and we could look at them. So this is only the second time I've seen the movie and I gave it an eight out of 10. I really thought it was an absolute landmark of modern filmmaking and it has this legacy all its own. And it's just, I'm so glad that I, I wish I would have, and I'm kicking myself for not having seen it more. I wish I would have gone to some of the live performances where they show it at the, at, at like the Hollywood Bowl, you know, um, and the good thing is it's on Disney Plus. So I, there's always going to be there if I, I do want to watch it. Um, trivia, you know, I think we, we, when we, I always bring up the Roger Rabbit episode because that was one where we went so far down the rabbit hole, no pun intended, with all this trivia stuff. There's a lot of trivia on Nightmare Before Christmas. Thankfully, there are documentaries that you could watch on it. So I didn't want to bog down with too much. Mm -hmm. I think the one thing I wanted to bring up was that, you know, the movie did take three years to complete. I, I heard them say that it, it took about a week to do one minute of footage. And so they were, they were in this warehouse in San Francisco and they had to just put this together and it was, they were still on a deadline and yeah, but still three years to complete. And Tim Burton would just drop in uh, when he had breaks, when he was shooting Batman Returns. Uh, and I think the, the notorious part of this movie is that, yeah, mm -hmm. it was originally planned to be a Walt Disney Pictures release, but then Michael Eisner thought it was too dark for kids. So they switched it to Touchstone. And hey, that's perfect for us because then we can, we can watch it for our podcast. Um, personal connection. Uh, I'm going to ask you, I know that I saw Tim Burton do a Q&A in 2013 at the Aero Theater in Santa Monica. Chad, were you with me for that? Yeah, that was for Frankenweenie. And Frankenweenie, He had broken yeah. his arm shortly before showing up, so. Oh, you remember? Oh, God, I forgot about that, yeah. Frankenweenie was fun. It's one of those ones where, like, you know, when Chad and I would go to a lot of these director Q&As for people that we, we had admired for many years, it was always great when they were movie that promoting was one that you actually liked. <laughs> yes. Cause there, there's too many times where we've sat through movies where we're just like, Oh God, I just want to get to the Q and a and, and, and hear some, hear them tell some stories about something else. But yeah, I did enjoy Frank and Weenie enough. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I can say that we did get to see Tim Burton. Um, I can also point out that Chad and I almost saw Chris Sarandon do a Q and a at the new art theater where it was a midnight screening of fright night. And they had several cast members there, and Chris Randon was supposed to be one of them. And then as we got there for the screening, they announced that he could not be with us. I don't know if he was under the weather or he was out of town, but he did send a videotaped intro that was really clear. Because I, I think he quotes a line from the movie, mm -hmm. doesn't he, at yeah. the end of the video? Yeah. But that was, the, that, was, I, that was one of the more infamous Q&As that Chad and I went to because it was a midnight screening. <laughs> the movie did not start till 1 o'clock. There was a Q&A afterwards, and then the, the talent was signing autographs in the lobby. So Chad and I did not leave the theater until about 4.30 yeah. in the morning, I think it was. <laughs> How fitting for a vampire movie, though. <laughs> yes, yes. And then, of course, I mentioned Greg Proops as in the sporting cast, just so that I can bring up the personal connection, is that I've been very fortunate to have seen Greg Proops do his live podcast a couple of times in Hollywood. He used to go to the Cine Family, the silent movie theater, on Fairfax for his podcast, which is called the Greg Proops Film Club. And I went to at least three or four different episodes and they're really great. He would pick, he picks a random movie and then he'll talk for like 20, 30 minutes before the movie, then he screens it and then he'll talk for 20 or 30 minutes after, and then he'll stitch the two parts together and make a podcast out of the, the discussion. And so I did see him, um, he usually tries to focus on like one particular performer from the film and then talk about them. And so the first time I went, he was showing Alfred Hitchcock's Lifeboat, and he discussed uh, the actress Tallulah Bankhead. Uh, I went another time for Gilda, and he discussed Rita Hayworth. 
And I think the last time I went, they showed Pillow Talk, the awesome Rock Hudson Doris Day which movie, which if you haven't seen it, go watch it right now. And he talked about Doris Day, and that was really cool. So, But I think he's got a couple podcasts. He, he used to have one called The Smartest Man in the World. I know that. So but I'm trying to think. Have you ever, have you, did you ever go to one of the Greg Probst film clubs? Did you ever see him in person? I have not. Oh, yeah. He's a hoot. He's, re he's really, really funny. Um, okay, well, let's look, look at the legacy of the film. Well, this is Nightmare Before Christmas. You know, this is one of the most marketed touchstone films at this mm -hmm. point, you know, with movies like Roger Rabbit and Dick Tracy. You know, even though it's now considered a Disney film, it's well represented at the Disney parks. You know, if you, you go, the last time I was at Disneyland, there was somebody dressed up like Jack, and it was creepy <laughs> because the guy didn't have like a big head. He just had like this extension of his skull, and he had the, it just, it just did not look, it did not look right. But there's so much merch for sale in the stores. And of course, like I said, during the, during the fall, if you get a chance, it's, it's really cool when they, they put the Nightmare Before Christmas overlay on the Haunted Mansion ride. It's really entertaining. As I mentioned, it was re-released into 3D theaters in 2006. And at that time, the Touchstone Pictures logo was removed and replaced with Walt Disney Presents, which I believe that's how it plays on Disney+. Plus. I, I don't, can't remember if I saw the Touchstone logo or not when I watched it. Um, and then as I also mentioned, they did live performances of the movie at Hollywood at the Hollywood Bowl back in 2015, 2016, and again in 2018. They did it this past year uh, at the Bank of California uh, Stadium, which is the brand new soccer stadium we have out here in LA. Um, Chad, I know you said you didn't you didn't realize what it was, but they basically project the movie. They have a live orchestra, and then whenever there's a song, they actually bring out a talent, uh, some some voice cast to come out and sing the song. And so I, I went years ago, and I think I went in 2016, and I saw them do it with Little Mermaid, which was really cool because they had Sarah Bareilles singing the parts of Ariel. I'm a big fan of Sarah Bareilles. And so now I'm just like, I would have loved to have seen that. And I think you mentioned a lot of the performances are on YouTube, correct? Yeah, the last uh, from 2021 is on YouTube. I don't, it's like 55 minutes, so I don't know if they cut out you know, like the non-singing portions. Uh, I mean, it, mm -hmm. it still flowed pretty well. And, and yeah, I, you know, I didn't realize, you know, that it was going to be Danny Elfman, Weird Al Yankovic, Paul Rubens, Billy Eilish, you know, it's, I was like, Oh, I just was expecting play the music to along with the film, but yeah. silly me should have looked at the fine print better. Yeah. And one of the cool things about it, the live performance is usually, I think they've done it every year. Uh, they'll do an encore where Danny Elfman will come out and play mm -hmm. Dead Man's Party, which is, like you said, he doesn't perform anymore because he's worried about hearing loss. So it's mm -hmm. it's kind of unique. All right, we'll, we'll, we're going to move on, Chad. Any any final thoughts about uh, Nightmare Before Christmas? You know, I, I'm just going to say that, I again, I like the film. I need to watch it in a better frame of mind, I guess. But when it comes to these podcasts, these these films that are so popular and have – and that have stood the test of time. I don't find them as interesting to talk about, but this next mm. film that we're going to talk about, I have oh, been God. dying for a week to talk about this next <laughs> film. Well, yeah, I know that, that is funny. It's been a great, a lot of great discoveries in this podcast, movies like the doctor mm. or uh, my boyfriend's back even, but yeah, nine more for Christmas. I, this is one of the ones I guess I just, I don't know why I haven't watched this more. It's, mm. it's amazing. Well, what the heck? I went and did my best, and my God, I really tasted something swell. And for a moment, why, I even touched the sky, and at least I left some stories they can tell I did. And for the first time, 
since I don't remember when I felt just like my old bony self again And I... Jack! The Pumpkin King! That's right! I am the Pumpkin King! <laughs> and I just can't wait until next Halloween Cause I've got some new ideas that will really make them scream And by God, I'm really going to give it all my might! Uh-oh, I hope there's still time to set things right. All right, as I always like to do on this show, we'll, we'll compare the themes of another film that came out around the same time from either Walt Disney Pictures or Hollywood Pictures. And I gotta be honest with you, Chad, when I was trying to, when I plan out the year in advance, and I try to link these movies together. These two movies were the ones that I just could not link to anything else. And so I said, let's just link them together because they're so unique. Nightmare Before Christmas. And of course, the next film that we're going to talk about from Hollywood Pictures, which is which released on May 28th of 1993. And it's called Super Mario Brothers. From Hollywood Pictures. You must be the great Koopa. He controlled half the universe. Sky in charge. But he wanted more. Get me! Come and get it, lizard breath! Now, two plumbers from Brooklyn plumbers. must find the power to stop him. I'll kill that plumber! See you later, alligator! Super Mario Brothers, rated PG parental guidance suggested. Starts Friday, May 28th at a theater near you. I, I think, Chad, you joked about it before, but this is one of those movies that makes me wish this podcast was called Out of Hollywood. Because, <laughs> I mean, we're here to talk about the touchstone movies, but... There is so much to, un much, much to unpack with Super Mario Brothers mm -hmm. that I, I, I'm so glad that we got to see it. And I mean, again, I don't know how you can link it back to Nightmare Before <laughs> Christmas, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Fever dreams. Uh, They're both fever dreams. <laughs> exactly. It'd be a great double feature. <laughs> um, the film, this film was directed by Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jankel. And if that name, those names sound familiar to our Touchstone fans, that was because they had previously directed DOA in 1988 for Touchstone. They had also created the TV series Max Headroom. Uh, the screenplay had gone through several different writers. Uh, I see the name Barry Morrow, who had written Rain Man. I see we had Jim Genowine and Tom S. Parker. They had written Stay Tuned. Uh, then a screenplay was written by the British writing team of Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet, who were coming off of movies like The Commitments. Their screenplay was a lot more of an adult version. I'd read that some of the cast members did not agree to do this film until they read the Dick Clement, Ian Lafrenet script. And that's what got people to do it. So of course the cast was all disappointed when that script, when, was, when they were fired and replaced by Parker Bennett and Terry Runty. Now their only prior screenwriting credit was the 1991 comedy Mystery Date. And you also had some script doctoring work from Ed Solomon. Denomalos. Denomalos, you beat me to it, yes, Denomalos. Yeah. He had, done the, he had done the Bill and Ted films, and his most recent film before this was Mom and Dad Save the World. So, yeah, I think the Parker Bennett, Derry Runty, and Ed Sullivan are the ones who actually get the credits. But, uh, yeah, of course, this movie is based on the popular video game about brothers Mario and Luigi, played by Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo. They're fighting the evil King Koopa, played by Dennis Hopper, while trying to rescue a princess, who in this, play, in this case is played by Samantha Mathis. We get a lot of... Uh, Disney returnees, I guess we should say, in this movie. You know, Bob Hoskins was in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He was also in Passed Away for Hollywood Pictures. Ah, one of those great finds mm -hmm. from this podcast. I can't recommend that movie enough. I totally forgot Dennis Hopper was in My Science Project, the third film that, no, not, excuse me, 
the fourth film, I forgot about Baby, The Secret <laughs> of the Lost Legend, the fourth Touchstone film, My Science Project. Uh, the supporting cast has Fisher Stevens. Of course, he was also in My Science Project. He was in The Marrying Man for Hollywood Pictures. Richard Edson, who was in Good Morning Vietnam and Crossing the Bridge for Touchstone. We also get Fiona Shaw, who was in Three Men and a Little Lady for Touchstone. So just a lot of just random connections. And we also get Mojo Nixon, Chad. Because if your movie don't got Mojo Nixon, then your movie could use some fixing. I know. And I'm pretty sure Debbie Gibson was pregnant with his two-headed love child at the time. <laughs> oh, man. We need more Mojo Nixon in our lives. Uh, okay. You know, we, we can't go too deep into this movie. I'll just say that when I was when I had to watch it for the show, I was just like, oh, am I going to enjoy this? And it reminded me again, Chad, you and I went to a midnight screen of this movie <laughs> about 10 years ago, wasn't it? Uh, somewhere around that time frame, yes. And that was the first time I'd ever seen it. Me too. And I remember walking out of that screening thinking, that movie is not nearly as bad as I've been led to believe. Because mm -hmm. I wound up really enjoying it. It plays so well as a midnight movie. And so... When I watched it again, or whatever it was, last week or two weeks ago, uh, I was like, oh, here we go, Super Mario Brothers. And it happened again, Chad. As soon as the movie was over, I'm just like, I'm so glad I got to see this movie again. Yeah, you you talked in your intro about this movie being based on the video game. Uh, I say if you're going to watch this movie, forget that you know there is a Super Mario Brothers video game because uh, it, it's very tangentially connected to the video game. And I think that's where a lot of people's complaints come from is that, yeah. you know, this doesn't necessarily follow the, the deep storytelling of the super Mario brothers video game series from, you know, that was so deep and, and, and in depth in 1993. Um, wow. I think a lot of the complaints come from the fact this movie is weird as it, hell. It is weird, but it is, I don't know. I, I was just watching this movie going like, okay, again, push the video game out of my mind. Let me watch this film. And I'm just like, I don't know what I'm watching, but I know it's awesome. And I know yeah. that I should own this movie because, and I should watch this movie at least like once every year. Um, you know, maybe do a little back-to-back uh, -back double feature with pump up the volume so I can get a Samantha Mathis double, double feature and just have to work that in since it's my favorite film. Sure. But, uh, but yeah, no, this movie is just, I, you know, I, I have now found the the link to the uh, the Morton Jenkel fan edit of the film, which is twenty minutes longer. Which I want to go back and rewatch now. And I, uh, right before we started recording, I was looking some stuff up. I found the Jim Genoan and Tom Parker screenplay. I want to read that. Uh, oh, okay. I am. I, I I'm going to make a bold prediction here. But I think Super Mario Brothers may come up quite a bit in the Ronnie Awards for 1993, even though they're not really eligible because they're Hollywood films. Yeah, we'll have to maybe we can bend the rules. I will be a write-in. Yeah, yeah, it breaks my heart that the film is not really it's not available on Blu-ray. Only it was only released in the UK, so it's it's a region whatever that is region mm. B or region mm. C. Like, um, it's, you can't even buy it on iTunes. Like, it seems like Disney's just kind of trying to bury this movie. I happened to actually stumble across a DVD when I was shopping at Amoeba records in Hollywood. And it's like, you know what? I, I need to watch it with a podcast. I'm going to buy it. And man, I'm so glad I did. I, yeah. I really, <laughs> I, when you and I went to that midnight screening, I, I think I have it somewhere. I don't know where I put it, but they, they, there were some people there that were trying to like, um, I think it might've been the people that put together that director's cut hmm. for on YouTube. They, they, they put out a comic book that was like a sequel. I don't know if it was, I don't know if the writers had tried to put together a sequel at one point. And so there is a comic book 
of the sequel that I have somewhere and I don't know what I did with it. Hmm. And so now I, I, I kind of want to go back and reread that, but I know I still have it in my possession. Um, well, thematic connections back to Nightmare Before Christmas. I mean, the best I could come up with is, well, this was some, both the films had truly unique world building in them, you know, like they, both movies feature these fantasy lands filled with these off the wall characters that are yearning to sort of be somewhere else. Hmm. Right. Like, I feel like, it's interesting that like Jack in this movie, Jack could be, relate to Mario, but he could also relate to King Koopa, right? Because King Koopa's whole role in this movie is that he's in that other world and wants to get hmm. to the normal world to get back to earth. Right. And then of course, Mario and Luigi have been sucked in there and they want to get back. But I guess we talk about the, the mad scientist aspect of, of Jack. Sometimes I, I feel like he almost has more qualities with King Koopa than he does with Mario. I, okay, I, I hadn't thought that much about it because, like I said, I just watched this movie and went, "Wow, this is fantastic!" And I don't know why Dennis Hopper and John Leguizamo and Bob Hoskins badmouthed it afterwards. But but I, well, see I think post- the stories you've always I've always heard is that the, the production was a real thing. Yes, no pun no pun intended with Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. yeah, it's like the directors didn't know what they were doing. There were so many problems in the set. Yeah. Again, there were. The script wasn't the right script when they showed. I said the actors showed up on set to learn that they're not working on the same script that they mm-hmm. agreed to. Now I, I think that would yeah. probably upset you. Yeah, yeah, and I can I understand wondered, that, but yeah, I just yeah. yeah. The other thematic connection, I wonder, just would you say that the? I feel like both the Jack Sally love story and the Luigi and uh, what was Samantha Mathis? I, Daisy. Uh, the what was it? Uh, Daisy, Princess Daisy. Okay, yeah, their love stories were a little bit on the thin side where yeah. it's like you're just wrapped into this other adventure where it's like kind of almost detracting a little bit from it. We don't, I mean, if they would have fleshed it out a little bit more, maybe it would have been more uh, memorable. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, Super Mario Brothers, certainly memorable. I'm sure there is any number of podcasts you can go out and listen to that break this movie down. They probably rip it to pieces, but that ain't happening here because no. Chad, Chad and I are the perfect target audience for a movie like this that puts a smile on our face. For a couple of hours, and just on a personal level, Fiona Shaw, va va va, wow, she is, she, that's a handsome woman. I, I didn't realize it. She's, it was fun to uh, watch her kind of be devilish and sort of chew up the scenes that she was in. Yeah, I did enjoy that. Uh, all right, well, we'll wrap up the show by looking at the box office performance of the films. Uh, one did a little bit better than the other. <laughs> I, I, I can tell you that, not much, but, but a little bit better. Uh, we'll, we'll start with Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, that was released on October 13th, it actually was a Wednesday, and it was only limited to two screens, yet it finished 20th, it only made 191,000 at the box office, but that was 95,000 per screen, which just obliterated the entire field. Um, The other films that opened against it were Beverly Hillbillies, which finished in second place, Judgment Night, which finished in fifth place, and Mr. Wonderful, the documentary about wrestler Paul Orndorff. Classic, Uh, classic, yes. I kid. I, I, Mr. Wonderful, I, I, didn't, I think I had to look that one up. I'm not exactly familiar with that movie. Um, and then there was also limited releases like Rudy, Fearless, and Farewell, My Concubine. Uh, at the time, there were three other Disney films on the chart. Cool Runnings was in third place. The Joy Luck Club was in seventh. And the program was in 12th. And in second week, Nightmare Before Christmas expands to 500 screen, 563 to be exact. And it jumps all the way up to third place with 6.2 million. Uh, Beverly Hillbillies was finished finished first that week. Uh, and then it climbs to first place in its third week after it expands to 1,600 screens, and it earns $8.2 Now, that was Halloween weekend, and there were, like, no other 
horror or thriller movies on the charts except what the good son which was like in 11th place i mean i don't know if you can call that like a halloween movie um although there was a return of the living dead three open but it would only open on nine screens it's just amazing to think that in october especially on halloween there was no other horror movies and so go let's go see tim burton's stop motion creation i guess right yeah uh when it rolls into november in its fourth week it's still in first place it finishes ahead of new releases such as robocop 3 and look who's talking now uh and then it drops to fourth place behind three new releases three musketeers carlito's way and my life it ends up dropping to sixth place and then it drops to eighth place for thanksgiving and then the week after that it leaves the box office charts so it has a solid two-month run. It, it makes $50 million in its entire theatrical run, um, and the budget was $24 million. So right about where we said that if you can make twice the budget, that's about breaking even, right? Mm -hmm. So it's weird to think. Like I thought it was more successful than it was, but it still wasn't this bomb that sometimes people try to make it out to be like it was – you know, nobody, nobody cared about it. No, people did care about it. It wasn't just – it wasn't great big. Yeah, I'm surprised they didn't try doing a uh... – you know, a, a new promotional push after Thanksgiving and kind of make it into a Christmas film like like it kind of has become now. And, you know, maybe that's just time. And they thought, well, let's rush it out for home video early in the year. Well, yeah. And it's it's weird to think about how this movie actually straddles two holidays, right? Mm -hmm. Like, do you watch this movie on Halloween? Do you watch it on Christmas? Like, I think it actually works for both. Mm -hmm. And then the fact that it came out in October, like I mentioned, like there were no other Halloween themed movies at the time. So it's like it wound up working in Disney's favor. You know, I, I did see an interesting part, which is I looked at the Adams Family movies. Now, the two live action Adams Family movies that came out in the early 90s, the Bobos came out in November. But when they did the Adams Family animated movies that came out like within the last three or four years, both of those came out in October. Hmm. Like they realized, OK, this is more of a Halloween thing. Let's put it out there. Um, I noticed there were no other animated films going up against Nightmare Before Christmas, not until Thanksgiving. And that was a movie called We're Back, A Dinosaur's Story, which I, I AKA mean, AKA Super Mario Brothers. I'm sorry? <laughs> I said AKA Super Mario Brothers. Oh, yeah, yeah. I wonder if it was, like I said, I wonder if I maybe seen a VHS cover at some mm. point back in the video store. No, you don't remember you the, don't? the drawing of the dinosaurs kind of walking down Fifth Avenue in New York? That was We're Back? Okay. Pretty sure, yeah. Okay, wow. That, I mean, I, that, that, that sounds familiar now that you mention it, yeah. And then even the teenagers, you know, they might only be watching movies like Judgment Night or Demolition Man. So Nightmare for Christmas, you know, was it kind of hit that hit that good spot. You know, I wouldn't consider it a family film, but, you know, movies like Beverly Hillbillies and Cool Runnings weren't necessarily stiff competition. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm, I'm wondering if maybe that effect that it was stop motion, if that kept it from making a little bit more. Maybe, or, you know, just... The fact that no one knew what it was. And let's be honest, though, Beverly Hillbillies did have Jim Varney. That's true. I always get show some love for Jim Varney. Uh, okay, well, we'll look at the other film, which, of course, Super Mario Brothers. That was released on May 28th, right around Memorial Day. Yeah. It finished fourth with $8.5 million. The other films that opened against it were Cliffhanger, which finished in first, Made in America, which finished second, and Minister Society finished seventh. Interestingly enough, it's, it's Labor Day weekend, or Memorial Day weekend, there are no other Disney films on the mm. charts. God, I, I can imagine we would ever have a Memorial Day weekend without a multiple Disney films. Uh, and its second week, it drops to sixth place. It only makes $4.2 million, half what it made the first week. And we get new films. We actually get two new Disney releases, Guilty of Sin, which finished in third place, and Like with Mikey, which finished in seventh place. And then its third week, it drops to 10th place when 
Jurassic Park opens. And of course, game over at that point, right? Mm -hmm. No one's watching any of the other big, <laughs> big budget action movies. Of course, it drops off the box office charts after only three weeks. It grosses $20.9 million in its entire theatrical run. And the budget, I saw reports that said it was somewhere between 42 and 48 million. So I can hmm. believe that because after watching it again, like the, the sets and the scenery are just incredible. And I'm sure those did not come cheap. Yeah. Well, at least we had one movie that made twice its budget and one movie made half its budget. So, I don't know. You call that breaking even. Um, as far as if Mario Brothers box office analysis, I mean, like, you know, the initial burst might have been due to the love of the video games. But I'm imagining that word of mouth probably sank this film oh, yeah. to where it couldn't compete in that tough summer marketplace. right? And like I said, it, the fact that it, it, it you're you're hoping that people who know the video game are coming into the movie, but they're not getting the video game that they expect. And I think that probably rubbed people the wrong way. Yeah. And who's it going to? It's like, I heard that, that one of the problems they had with these screenplays, they kept changing the screenplays because they wanted to make yeah. it more kid friendly. But I'm like, wouldn't the teenagers been the ones that probably played the video games? Mm -hmm. Do you want to try to make it appeal to adults? Like there were no other real kids movies out at the time, unless you consider a movie like Hot Shots Part Do, <laughs> you know, a family friendly film. I just, I don't know. I, I kind of get the feeling that if the movie was just maybe slightly better, you and I like it from like a cult film standpoint, mm -hmm. but if it had just been a little bit more tight and cohesive, even if it had been something like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I think it could have done a lot better business. I think they, they, they didn't know who to make it for. And then the people, the audience didn't know who it was made for. So they didn't go see it, <laughs> I guess. Um, all right. Well, we always like to look at the awards consideration for the films as well. Uh, I'm surprised. I did not see anything for Super Mario Brothers. And I, I say I'm surprised because as, as much as it's been harped on over the past few years, I don't think it got any Razzie nomination, mm. which was a bit of a shock. Yeah, and Nightmare I, Before Christmas uh, did get some awards. What, I mean, real, real quick, I think I think Yoshi should have at least gotten a young actor's nominee for Super Mario Brothers. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. I guess the the, uh, the Mario's themselves were. Just I guess maybe because they're sixty. He was sixty-five million years old. Maybe he didn't That's qualify true. for a young actor. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Uh, Nightmare Before Christmas did get some award nom uh, award nominations. It got an Academy Award nomination for Best Visual Effects, which it lost to Jurassic Park. Uh, Danny Elfman's score got a Golden Globe nomination. It lost to uh, the film Heaven and Earth, and that score was performed by Kitaro. That's the I think that was the Oliver Stone one of Oliver Stone's Vietnam movies. Um, there, there it is, the Young Artist mm -hmm. Awards. It did get nominated for the Outstanding Family Motion Picture Action Adventure. Sure. You want to call it that? Okay. Uh, and it lost to, you know, Jurassic Park, the family <laughs> motion picture with all the young artists in it. I guess it did have the two kids. But mm -hmm. uh, I, I, one interesting uh, tidbit is that according to IMDb, The Nightmare Before Christmas won the Best Film, Best Family Film Award at the Nickelodeon's Kids' Choice Awards. I find that hard to believe. And so I looked on Wikipedia. And Wikipedia said that Jurassic Park won the favorite film award. Mm -hmm. So I was like, how do we determine which one's correct? Well, wouldn't you know it? The 1994 Nickelodeon's Kids' Choice <laughs> Awards are on YouTube. <laughs> so I was able to watch it, hosted by Joey Lawrence. Whoa. Whoa. Joey Lawrence and Candace Cameron both hosted it. And I did scrub through it to see that the favorite film award did go to Jurassic Park. Mm. So IMDb is incorrect. All right, well, let's recap the films we looked at. And we always like to look at would they fit Jeffrey Katzenberg's Disney ideal of singles and doubles. And I got to be honest with you, Chad, I thought they absolutely did. 
because there's a there's a straight statement that comes to mind when I think of these two movies, especially a movie like Super Mario Brothers. Fortune favors the bold. You know, Super Mario Brothers was a wildly popular game, but the movie was, I think, doomed by just way too much interference. And then if you look at Nightmare Before Christmas, that's becoming a sort of beloved holiday film, which Disney has wound up reappropriating into their group of classic animated films and intellectual properties. So I can't fault the studio for either one of these films. Yeah, I mean, Super Mario Brothers is an interesting choice. And like you said, I think just too many people were involved for it to have a cohesive, you know, uh, focus and, and solid project. But I know they're coming out with an animated film later this year, but I would I would love to see a live action Super Mario Brothers sequel. Um, mm. or, you know, spiritual sequel, at least to, to Super Mario Brothers. And, and yeah, Nightmare Before Christmas, you figured, you know, uh, with Tim Burton's name attached, you, you know, coming off of Beetlejuice and Batman and um, even Pee-wee's Big Adventure. I think, yeah, it's, I can see why they, you know, spent the money on that one. But one, one, one was a gamble that paid off and the other was um, The Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. And so uh, we'll wrap up the show by saying where you can watch these films. Thank thankfully, you know, Nightmare Before Christmas, as I mentioned, is streaming on Disney Plus, not a sponsor. Super Mario Brothers is a little more difficult to find. Like I said, unfortunately, I think you may have to go the physical media route. I don't I checked iTunes. I don't know if it's on any of the other ones. Uh, there's a great uh, website and app that I like to use called Just Watch. Justwatch.com. They have a great uh, app for your phone, and you just search the movie. Look up any movie; it'll tell you where it's streaming. And I believe Super Mario Brothers does not have it listed as streaming no. anywhere. But I will say, if you look for the alternate cut, I believe there is a website that has the fan edit uh, streaming somewhere. So if you want to get at least something, there is that yeah. that is out there. But I don't yeah, know I'm exactly gonna... where that is, and I will not tell you because. Uh, intellectual copyright laws but i'm sure that's true if you know how to operate search engines you can probably find it <laughs> you'll have to just watch like i said i i lucked out and found a used dvd copy i was going to go to the public library and find it but mm. i was able to buy a copy and, for, and i believe that dvd is also it's non-anamorphic widescreen mm. too so it just looks terrible on the big tv yeah. well so. and if you can't find it i'm sure the old captain lou albano mario show is on youtube oh yeah so Watch that instead. All right. Well, what are we looking at for our next episode? Well, we get our second Touchstone sequel of the year 1993. What film is that? Well, you're just going to have to tune in next time to find out. Once again, my name is Mike DeKalb. You can find me on Twitter at Mike DeKalb. I also run the Out of Touchstone Twitter account. It's at Out of Touchstone. If you want to shoot me an email, it's out of touchstone at gmail.com. I'm not as active on Twitter, but it was nice to see those nice tweets that I mentioned earlier today. I hope... Uh, we got some new subscribers, and I hope they enjoy what they hear. Uh, again, my co-host is Chad Smart. You can find him on Twitter at Chad Smart. He also has another podcast that you and I host. At the moment, it's called Wonder Why, where we look at one-hit wonders. Chad, what are we talking about in our next episode of Wonder Why? I like big hits, and I cannot lie. Um, oh. Yeah, you and I are going to take a look at the uh, the Seattle rap scene. With uh, Sir mix a lot, yeah, and, nice, uh, and nice. I just want to say, you know, I want to give thanks to uh, the the people you mentioned at the beginning of the show. Uh, you know, I've had some interactions on Twitter myself with uh, with them, and I, you know, as long as it's not the Disney legal team tweeting at us, then I think we're okay. <laughs> 
I know it's funny to think that we both kind of work with with, with Disney as our jobs, and I'm always wondering, am I am I going to get some a random email from somebody <laughs> over there saying, "Hey, are are you doing a podcast about our movies and pulling pulling clips from them?" You know, we don't make any money off of this, so mm -hmm. I'm not, we know we don't profit off of them. But to be honest, like I said, I, I thought this would you and I hosting this podcast might actually make our jobs better if we got a chance yeah. to work on these films at some point. So. Anyway, any any parting thoughts for our dear listeners as we uh, welcome to 2022? Yeah, no, just uh, thanks for uh, listening, and I can't wait to see what comes next. This is out of touchstone, and we're out of time. You're out of touch. I'm out of time. Out of Touchstone is a Honey Nerds production. For more information, visit outoftouchstone.com. Like and subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. So, you're cool, I'm cool, we're cool, thank you, good night.